Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Think Like a Human. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Will Cilio, and today we're going to be talking about the philosophy of imagination and transformative experience with Professor Amy Kind of CMC. Professor Kind's work in philosophy has focused on imagination, a topic on which she has a lot of influence in the world of philosophy, so I'm very lucky to be able to talk with her about the subject. Um, before we dive in, I have a couple things uh, just to get out of the way. First off, welcome to season two. Thanks so much for waiting. I have like three episodes already recorded um, and should get those out pretty quickly. But after that, I will be back to recording episodes again. So if anyone has any ideas or things you'd like me to hear me talk about with people, uh, shoot me a message. I would love to hear any and all suggestions. Um, also, I'm unsure how many episodes this season will end up being, but I will do my best to keep people up to date through the Instagram channel, at ThinkingHumanly. Also, apologies for the uh, sound quality of this segment and the outro of, um, of this episode. I um, am actually currently away from my microphone, so I'm doing this on a pair of, uh, a pair of headphone microphones. Um, so the intro and outro are a little bit uh, distorted and weird, but the interview itself, uh, which was recorded on my microphone, um, is all, all there, all fine. So um, that's the important part. Anyways, this episode was super fun to record, and I hope you all love it. Here we go. Cool. So, Professor Kind, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Think Like a Human. Happy to be here. Um, and yeah, we're here to talk about imagination and especially imagination as a philosophical concept, um, which is something that you're definitely very well versed in um, as a professor of philosophy who specifically focuses on imagination. Um, so yeah, why don't you just give us a little overview of imagination as a philosophical concept? Sure. Um so I think a lot of times when people think about imagination in ordinary life, they probably associate it maybe with sort of daydreaming or fantasizing, or maybe they associate it with children's games of pretending. So when you're imagining stuff with kids, imagining being a superhero, imagining um, being a monster, imagining that the, there's lava uh, between the couches, um, Flaming lava, I think yeah. it always is. In any case, those are maybe some concepts, some contexts in which imagination comes up in everyday life. Um, philosophers tend to think about imagination in more contexts than that. So one place where philosophers think about imagination as in everyday life is in terms of pretending and child development and so on. Um, but philosophers also think about imagination in the context of aesthetics, philosophy of art. So the role of imagination in our both production of and our engagement with art and literature and music, all of that. So that's one area of philosophical discussion of imagination. Philosophers also um, think about imagination with respect to what we call, so here's some jargon, um, modal epistemology. So epistemology is the study of knowledge. So modal epistemology is knowledge of modality. In other words, knowledge of possibility and necessity. So if I want to know um, if there is um, a cat in the room, I can just open my eyes and look. 
if I want to know whether there could possibly fit 50 cats in the room or a thousand cats in the room, then I might use my imagination. So imagination plays a role in modal epistemology and imagination. So aesthetics, modal epistemology, and I'll give you one more. Um, imagination also plays a role in um, what's called the theory of mind debate. So we often in everyday life in interacting with one another we need to be able to predict and explain the behavior of the people that we're interacting with. And one common theory of how we do that is that we do a sort of imaginative simulation of what's going on for the other person. So I might see someone uh, on the first day of classes, I might see someone sort of pausing and looking down at their phone and then looking around. And I might imaginatively project like, oh, if I were doing that, looking that way, probably what would be going on is I couldn't find the classroom I'm in. So maybe I should offer this person um, some guidance uh, if I if I can uh, about where the classroom is that they're looking for. So those are some everyday contexts um, and philosophical contexts in which imagination is involved. Now that doesn't really tell you too much yet about what imagination is, um, which I think you probably also wanted me to talk about. And um, as with so many things in philosophy, there's not a huge amount of consensus on this question, but there probably are some things that most philosophers working on imagination would agree with. And so I'll just say um, a few of those things. So there's um, a way in which imagination is importantly different from, say, another mental state like belief, where Typically, when we think about belief or our beliefs, what we believe, um, our beliefs may be false, but they aim at the true. So when we believe something, we're aiming to get things right. And imagination seems different from that. We could imagine something without aiming to get it right. We might be aiming to get it right. We might be aiming at something true, but we need not when it comes to imagining. So imagination has a different connection with truth say, than belief does. Um, likewise, uh, imagination seems to have a different relationship to agency and to the will than belief does, or than perception does, for that matter. So if um, I don't have a particular belief, it actually turns out to be very hard to get myself to form that belief. I might get myself to think that thought but that's different from getting myself to have the belief. So, for example, if I don't believe that there's um, a leprechaun under the desk, uh, it's very hard to see what I could do to bring myself to have that belief. Uh, I can't just will it into existence. Um, again, I can think the thought, but I can't have that belief in a sustained way, or maybe not even momentarily. Whereas it's very easy for me to imagine a leprechaun under the desk. Um, imagining that takes almost no effort at all. And even imaginings that might be more difficult, still they're the kinds of things that can be subject to our will. That is, we can make ourselves do them. Um, oftentimes, imagination is associated with mental imagery. And by imagery here, I don't just mean visual imagery. So there can be auditory imagining, there can be tactile imagining, there can be gustatory imagining, 
Um, so imagining in all different kinds of sensory modalities, you might imagine pain. And so there's a kind of, maybe imagery isn't always the right word. Sometimes we think in terms of sensory presentation or something like that. So to broaden out the notion. Now, I tend to have a very strong image-based conception of imagination, but not everyone does. So that's where we start to get into um, some more contentious matters. Cool. Like uh, like what? What might those uh, debates or, or different disagreements be? Well... Let's see. Um, so when I so do, so I don't know why I'm on leprechauns today, but since I already did that example, um, I think when we talk about the imagining of a leprechaun under the desk, it does seem very natural that that the way that that imagining would proceed would be image based. So almost right. surely you you picture a leprechaun under the desk, and. Um, you know, you might also hear the leprechaun, mentally hear the leprechaun and so on. But most people, I think, would um, very naturally produce some sort of mental image in order to imagine it. There are other kinds of imaginings where it seems less clear that what we're doing is producing a mental image, or at least that's what some folks say. Well, I guess there's two points here. Um, one is whether there has to be any imagery at all involved in the imagining, and the other is what role the, the image is playing in the imagining. It, sometimes it seems like there's a lot of content that can't be captured by the imagery. So if I'm not just imagining the leprechaun, but I'm let's suppose that what I'm imagining is an immortal leprechaun, there's a question as to how my imagery could capture like that notion right. of immortality. Like it doesn't seem like that's something that's pictured. Now, in that case, still probably I'm producing a mental picture. So imagination is still associated with the imagery, but maybe the imagery isn't mm-hmm. capturing everything about what I'm imagining. But sometimes um, with some other examples, people say like, oh, what if you are imagining infinity? Or what if you're imagining world peace? Or... And now you can come up with a lot of examples of abstract, more abstract concepts. It's not always clear that those imaginings would require any mental imagery at all, or at least the non-imagistic imagination people uh, would offer those kinds of examples. Right. And so with maybe an example such as uh, trying to imagine infinity, um, Mm -hmm. do you believe that we could, uh, for example, imagine infinity or something close to it, at least. That we could imagine it at all or that we could imagine it using mental imagery? I guess that we could imagine it at all. Um, so, yes, I do. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I, I don't think I've said this already. I'm a, I'm a big optimist about imagination. So I tend to think that people have great capacity for imagination and I tend to think that imagination has a very wide scope. That said, and, and I'll get back to your question, but let me just say this first because I think it helps to explain why I'm going to say what I say. I recently have been working to develop what I call a skills-based approach to imagining. And I think that part of remembering that imagination is a skill, and we do often in everyday life talk about imagination as a skill. So we we talk about flexing our imaginative muscles and that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's actually quite natural to think of imagination as a skill. 
But I think that we forget some facts about skills when we then talk about imagination. So some of the key facts about skills are that not everyone is as good at a particular activity as everyone else when we're talking about a skill. So I can't run as fast as skilled runners. I can't juggle as well as skilled jugglers. I can't ballroom dance as well as skilled ballroom dancers. Um, and that, so if we, if we were to ask like, oh, how many balls is it possible to juggle? And then we were to look to me, um, like that is me, Amy Kind, the answer would be zero, right? Um, if we were to look to one of my sons, maybe the answer would be three. And if we were to look to another of my sons, the answer would be four. And we'd be like, oh, well, it's possible to juggle four, four balls. But then you go to the circus or the juggling convention or Venice Beach or wherever people are juggling, and you see people juggling six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I mean, I'm sure the number is much higher than that, right? And so when we think about what's possible with respect to juggling, we think about the best jugglers, you know, not about like me or even my sons who are actually pretty good jugglers. Um, so when we talk about what's possible for imagining, we need to remember that different people are going to have different imaginative capacities. And that's something that I think we often forget. So when we talk now back to your example about infinity, I suspect that if you're um, a mathematician who is working on the notion of infinity and who has really spent a lot of time engaging with it, that you might very well be able to imagine infinity. Or, now that's a case in which you've developed the imaginative skill in part because of the vast store of information or the time that you've spent talking about it. But it might just be that you're someone, you don't really know much about math, you don't really know much about infinity, but you have spent a lot of time imagining all sorts of kooky things, right? And so you've developed the capacity to let your imagination run free in different kinds of directions. And you might be able to capture imaginatively something like infinity just because you're not because, so the mathematician example was, oh, this is someone who knows a lot about it, um, infinity and so can do it. But in this case, it might be, oh, this is someone who's really, really good at imagining. And so they can do it. They, they know how to let their imagination run free in the relevant respect. So going back to what I was just saying about imagination as a skill, I think it's important that we remember that the skill will differ from person to person, that we can get better at it. Um, so it's not like, like if I spend time juggling, maybe I could get better at juggling. And if people spend time at imagining, I think they can get better at imagining. Um, so, so there might be some innate differences. Like there are, there was, there's always all this talk about Michael Phelps and how his body is perfectly designed for swimming, right? Like, so he has this, um, very long wing, arm span, wingspan, and, um, I think his muscles don't produce lactic acid as fast as other people's or something like that. It's mm -hmm. actually, you can read a lot about Michael Phelps and how his body is like the... If someone were to design a swimming human, they would design something that looks like Michael Phelps, but he still puts in an enormous amount of work, right? He's in the pool, like, swimming all the time. Yeah. So there's this innate predisposition, but then there's also the work. So likewise, with respect to imagining, there might be some people who are better, like, mental imagers than others, um, who have certain other kinds of cognitive capacities, maybe innately, but still... 
to be a good imaginer takes a lot of work. So that's why I'm often skeptical when someone says, like, oh, that's not imaginable. Sort of like, did you try? Did you work (laughs) at it? How long did you try? Yeah. Right? So, like, if we say, oh, that juggling trick is impossible after trying it for 20 seconds, that's not really a good conclusion. Mm -hmm. Right? And likewise, I don't think that the people who are claiming that certain things are unimaginable have actually spent more, much more than 20 seconds, you know, trying to imagine them. So anyway, now yeah. that's a long speech about my pet peeves about imagination. But um, I, one of my pet peeves about imagination, which is in order to make claims about what we can and we can't imagine, we actually have to look to the best imaginers and we also have to look to imagining after effort has been put in. Hmm. That's really interesting. And that actually seems to um, tie into something that I've been thinking about uh, which is just, I guess, the idea of context. Um, and I don't know, I guess at least to me, it seems that imagination requires some sort of context. Um, you know, you as, as you said, you could have this mathematician who's been very well versed with the concept of infinity, and they might be able to imagine the concept of infinity. Um, and a very skilled imaginer uh, with perhaps less context might be able to um may be able to do the same thing and imagine that sort of uh, that sort of concept. But I guess my thought here is, what do you think about imagining things that maybe, for example, we don't have any context of at all? Um, let's say that very skilled imaginer uh, has never been introduced to the concept of infinity. Or maybe to simplify things, uh, you ask someone to imagine a pink elephant. And they've never seen an elephant in their life. Um, they've never even seen a picture of an elephant in their life, um, how close do we think they can get to imagining um, such a thing? Um, so in your example, have they read about elephants and just not seen pictures, or they just don't even know what an elephant is? Um, I guess I'd be curious in, in both cases, because um, one definitely seems easier, but the harder case would be if they haven't even read about it. Um, yeah. So... I think if I ask you to imagine, and now I put, I say some word, and you just have no idea what that word means. So you don't know if it's a fruit or an animal or a country or a piece of furniture, then I don't see how you could be very successful at imagining it. Now, the word might connote something to you. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when um, if you were to read a poem like Jabberwocky, uh, do you know that poem mm-hmm. by Lewis uh, Carroll? The words connote various things like they, you know, they sound like English words. And so uh, Mimsy were the Borgards or uh, my kids had to memorize Jabberwocky. So at one point I knew a lot of it. I did but too. I'm trying slithy to think toves, yeah. I think. Um, but that's... The gyre and gimbal in the way. Ah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> So yeah. I think like when you hear something like slithy toves, it sort of sounds like slimy toads or something. Yeah. And so I think you can. I don't know exactly what what Lewis Carroll had in mind, but it seems to me plausible to say that you're you're doing something like imagining slithy toves when you produce, say, slimy toad imagery, yeah. even even if that doesn't quite match up to what he had in mind. I mean, to some extent, this question gets us your question to me gets us to issues about what counts as imagining what. Um, but, uh, and we can go in that direction, but let me just take the other part of your question, 
which is if it's just that you haven't seen it, right? So like, let's suppose I've, I, you just don't know much about animals and now I give you a textbook, but it's kind of a bad textbook because it has no pictures, but it describes in vivid detail what the elephant looks like, what an elephant looks like. I don't see any reason why a skilled imaginer couldn't imagine that. Um, I, I think we do sorts of things like that all the time. I mean, think, I mean, just to give you one example here, think about the kind of imagining that's involved in developing new inventions, right? Or new architectural structures or new devices. Um, you mentally produce an image or something of something that doesn't yet exist, right? Um, and so if you're able to do that, then certainly it can't be true that you have to have seen something or had much experience with something in order to imagine it. So I, uh, there again, I, I guess I think um, the imagination might be less limited than uh, people often think. Right, right. But just to go down the, um, the, other, the other path that you were um, kind of just hinting at right yeah. there. The sort of criteria of correctness, yeah. we might say. Yeah, yeah, and especially with with the poem, uh, the Jabberwocky that you just brought up. That's very interesting because just thinking back to my experiences reading that poem in, I think, like maybe like sophomore year high school English, um, I can remember the very vivid sorts of imagery uh, that I've cooked up in my mind as a result of reading this poem that is literally composed of nonsense. Um, I guess it would be hard to say if there's a correct way to imagine a Jabberwocky, for example. Um, I'm sure that maybe Lewis Carroll's um, imagination of the Jabberwocky would be the quote-unquote correct way to do it, uh, considering that he's the author of the poem. But I guess in some sense, um, there's a way that no one's imagination of the Jabberwocky is going to be incorrect. To return to the, the case of, like I guess, the pink elephant, for example, you're, you as someone who's uh, seen a picture of an elephant before and seen the color pink and can... Seen elephants in real life. Yeah. Seen elephants in real life even. I, I've, But I guess one could say that your imagination of an elephant is going to be very different from the mental imagery that I'm going to produce when I think of an elephant um, just by nature of our different experiences uh, with the animal, etc. And so is there a sense in which no one's mental imagery of an elephant is going to be an incorrect imagining, I guess. And going back to like um, imagination and belief and uh, the way that imagination perhaps isn't exactly directed towards truth. Um, that seems like an interesting little point for me. Okay, so I have so much to say. Yeah, I always have a lot to say. Okay, so for, let's just move away from imagination for a second mm -hmm. and think about pictures. Okay, like actual pictures, not photographs necessarily, but like drawings. Mm -hmm. So let's suppose that I were to walk into class and I ask everyone to draw a picture of an elephant. Um, now, we're going to have some people that aren't particularly good artists in the class, and, um, and, and they're gonna, there's going to be a range of not just artistic skill, but a range of familiarity with elephants. And so not all the pictures are going to be sort of spot on. But I guess I'm inclined to think... I mean, an elephant isn't that exotic of an animal. I'm inclined to think that probably every drawing, say, that the students produced would count as a drawing of an elephant, right? Yeah. Um, now, maybe if someone produced something that looked like an eagle, 
we'd say like, no, no, they don't know what an elephant is. That's not a drawing of an elephant. But if they produce something where the trunk wasn't the right length or the ears were out of proportion to the body or the elephant was a lot smaller and not mouse size necessarily, but a lot smaller in relation to the trees and so on than real elephants are. Um, there we might say, well, you've gotten a lot wrong. But I think we would still count it as, an, as a drawing, a picture of an elephant. Um, so we tolerate a lot of um, flexibility, right, in what's going to count as a picture of an elephant. And I guess I would want to say the same thing about an imagining of an elephant, right? Why wouldn't we tolerate the same amount of flexibility there? So if you were to imagine something that was, again, out of proportion or doesn't get the, the trunk quite right, um, then I guess I'm inclined to say, you've imagined an elephant. Have you gotten it perfect? No, but you've imagined an elephant. But if you imagine something that's an image of, you know, like Tweety Bird, then no, like you haven't imagined an elephant. So we can distinguish, I think, two kinds of, of mistakes here. So in some cases, when we're imagining something, we've captured the target that we're aiming to imagine, but we've gotten various details about that target wrong. And so, yeah, it's an imagining of an elephant, but there's some details that aren't quite right. Um, and then in some cases where we try to imagine something, we just haven't gotten the target right at all. Like we, we've just missed our target. So you can miss your target or you can mischaracterize your target. And I think we tolerate a fair amount of mischaracterization of targets with respect to pictures, even pictures that are aiming to be realistic ones. And so I guess I would sort of want, in, when we ask all these questions about criteria of success for imagining, I would say, well, why don't we think a little bit about criteria of success for pictures? And that's not to say it necessarily has to be exactly the same, but we can learn some, some lessons from that. I can also see that sort of relating to, um, with this idea of like correct or I guess incorrect imagining, I think we could totally apply that to transformative experience and, um, and ideas of, you know, trying to like, I guess, see past, um, a very classic example of a transformative experience is becoming a, a biological parent. And perhaps there are, you know, ways that we can, with imagination, um, sort of see into the future uh, and imagine what it's going to be like being a biological parent when one isn't um, and ways that that can help us um, help help us in our lives. But um, I guess to go back to the correct and incorrect imaginings, I feel like that begs the question of there are going to be ways that, that our imagined experiences can, I guess, hurt instead of help us. Um, so my question is, as all of us navigate through our lives and um, intentionally or not um, use imagination to try and guide ourselves through these sorts of um, large life experiences, not even just becoming a biological parent, but perhaps um, perhaps deciding to try a new sport for the first time or to do bungee jumping or um, something that um, or something that we don't have the relevant experience to um, to think our way past, but perhaps we can imagine our way past. Um, so yeah, as we're, as we're all navigating through these sorts of experiences, what are some ways that you think um, we can both guard against incorrectly using imagination um, in these sorts of circumstances and also just um, use imagination to, to help us? 
So I think that for a lot of these experiences, these um, transformative experiences, the thought, at least um, among the philosophers who have been writing about this, is that there are certain experiences that, in principle, we can't know what they're like until we have them. So that's kind of like the definition of a philosoph- of a transformative experience in the philosophical sense. Like, it's impossible to know what the experience is like before you have it. And so the example that you gave of being a biological parent, that is one that seems like a plausible candidate for such an experience to a lot of people. Maybe not so much bungee jumping, just um, because you've probably experienced other kinds of fear-inducing activities before. Maybe you zip... I don't know. What's bungee jump? Oh, you... Off the bridge. Off the bridge, right. So maybe you've done ziplining or you've done parasailing or you've done other kinds of things. Cliff jumping. Um, And so you can uh, sort of draw a little bit from all of those experiences. Um, So... So I'm not so sure if that would count as a transformative mm-hmm. experience in that definition sense, but there are going to be a ton of them. And in fact, as um, for you as a college student and for your peers, you're facing a lot of important decisions right, yeah, about what yeah. you're going to do with your life. And a lot of those kinds of decisions, I think, relate to transformative experiences. So some people say um, being a surgeon, for example, like holding someone's life in your hands or being um, a soldier going to war. Um, Anyway, you can think of all. I don't know that every career is necessarily going to count as that kind of transformative experience, Mm -hmm. but a lot of those choices are. Mm -hmm. And notice that it's going to be difficult to make a decision when faced with that kind of choice. Like, so should I enlist in the Army? Should I go to med school to become a surgeon? If if I, can't, if I don't have access to what that experience is like, then whichever way I decide, it seems like my choice can't be rationally based, right? Because if I do do it, mm-hmm. I've done so like without knowing what it's like. And if I don't do it, well, it yeah. could have been something that I would, would have been perfect for me. So it's this like big puzzle of rationality. That's what philosophers have sort of gotten themselves worked up about lately. So that's like what's going on with this debate about transformative experience. And... Where I sort of enter the discussion is by saying, like, okay, look, I get it that being a parent or being a soldier or being um, a surgeon is very, very different from things that you've experienced when you're not a parent or you're not a surgeon or you're not a soldier. So, like, with the bungee jumping case, I immediately said, like, oh, look, maybe you've done this, maybe you've done that. But it seems like with the parent, we can't really find those kinds of examples, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe in middle school you brought home a doll and you had to carry around the doll for a week. It's like, no, that's not really like being a parent, yeah. right? Because yeah. when you left the doll in the car in the hot sun, you know, it was okay. And when you leave a baby in the hot sun, not okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and the doll, like, even if it cries at night, I don't know how sophisticated these dolls are. But, you know, even if the doll cries at night... Like, if you ignore the doll, nothing really bad's going to happen to the doll. And if you ignore the baby, it's a different story. Um, so the, the people who um, think that these experiences are just sort of epistemically out of reach to us think that we can't kind of put together elements from the kinds of experiences we've already had. And I 
disagree, or I disagree at least for some experiences and some imaginers. So let's just talk about being a parent, being a biological parent, about that kind of experience. Now, I am a biological parent. Um, and to be honest, I don't think that before I was a biological parent, I knew fully what I was getting myself into. So I don't think that I knew what it was like. But I also don't think I tried very hard. Like, I, you know, I imagined having a kid, but I didn't really like work to try and figure out what being right. a parent is like. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people do. Yeah. And yeah. I guess I think that the people who do, not just who buy the books, you know, what's it like to have a toddler and so on, not, not just like reading a parenting book or going to a parenting class, although all of that is useful too, but the people who really set themselves the imaginative task of trying to figure out what it's like to be a parent, I think that they might very well have success. Um, I've talked about this in various audiences, and often there'll be someone in the audience who says, I, I imagined it beforehand. Like, I, I, um, it was really important to me, and I imagined it, and I, I got it pretty much right. Um, there have, have definitely been some people who have said that to me. So then this mm-hmm. very strong in-principle claim, like, no, it can't be done, it starts to seem um, a little... Um, a little too strong yeah. uh, at, with respect to all imaginers and, and so on. So I don't think, um, I mean, I have a child and I have a dog. I have two children. I have a dog. And I'm getting another dog tomorrow, so very soon I'll have two dogs. But in any case, um, you know, I love my dog a lot. Um, but I don't think being a dog lover, having a canine companion is the same as having a baby. But that said, there are certain aspects of the kind of love that I feel from for the kind of love that I feel for my dog that I do think applies to the kind of love I feel for my child, for my children. And I think that the kind of love that one feels for one's children, parental love, is very different from the kind of love one feels for one's partner or from for one's parents or for one's pets or for um, oh, there are all kinds of love like. People have loving relationships with with, um, a deity or people have loving relationships with friends or with relatives. Anyway, I don't think that that parental love is exactly like any of those other kinds of love, those other kinds of loves, but I think there are elements that we can draw on. And that's what we do when we engage in imaginative projects, right? We draw a little bit from here and a little bit from here, and then we combine or add or subtract or transpose we mix them all up um mix mix up all the different elements and and we get to something new that's how imagination works so i guess i am skeptical of the skepticism that um there are all of these experiences that are imaginatively out of reach in principle might there be some yes i think there might be some that are imaginatively out of reach so the examples that I find most plausible are examples that involve someone who is lacking access to a particular sensory modality. So someone who, say, um, has no visual um, perception, can they mm-hmm. know what it's like to see? Um, there, that it seems to me possible that that might be imaginatively out of reach to them, possibly. Yeah. 
So I don't want to say that there are no experiences that are imaginatively out of reach, but I think the class is probably a lot smaller than some people have made it out to be. And given that the class is smaller, I think there isn't as big a threat to our rationality as the discussion of transformative experience has sometimes made it out. When it looks like, hey, you can't decide what to whether to have a baby, you can't decide whether to accept this career or that career, all of a sudden it starts to seem as if human decision-making is just, we're all just royally screwed, right? Because you can't make any of these decisions rationally. Um, But if at least some of those experiences are in reach, I mean, that is imaginatively in reach to us, then it looks like, okay, wait, maybe we can rationally navigate our lives. And even if there are some experiences that are out of reach, so in your lifetime, maybe y'all have the choice whether to um, get some kind of new sensory capacity because you'll be able to merge with some machine or get some new um, sensory chip, you know, implanted in your brain that will give you some new sensory capacity, like echolocation, echolocation, or electricity, (laughs) or something, you know, some kind of like electrical sensor. Who who knows what it's going to be? And so maybe that's a decision that. You're just going to have to throw caution to the wind. You can't really make it rationally whether to get the echolocation chip or not um, in a way that's going to be like authentic to your true self because you, you don't know what it's like. But even if there are those kinds of decisions that are going to be troubling um, for rationality, if you can decide what job to have, right, and whether to have a parent, then you're in pretty good shape. <laughs> right, right. But even, I guess, rationality, uh, the ability to, to make these sorts of, um, to use this imagine to use imagination to make these decisions rationally, I still see, I guess, a, a, a problem or with uh, the chance to imagine incorrectly. Mm. Like, say, I try and imagine what it's like to be a parent, and I royally screw up. And... Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a cakewalk, and I'm wrong. It's 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 impossible. It's so much harder than I thought. I, f- I feel like that's definitely one instance that imagining our way into um, these sorts of transformative life experiences could be potentially um, harmful rather than useful. Uh, let's just go back to the elephant for a second. Like, yeah. if you produce an image and it's like Tweety Bird, it's pretty easy to... F- figure out that you're wrong, right? Right. Because you can just describe what you imagine to someone else and they're going to be like, really? Like, that's nothing like an elephant. Mm -hmm. And now to get it perfect, well, I don't know how well they're going to be able to correct you, but they're going to let you know that like, hey, you're far, you're way off beat, off track. Mm -hmm. And likewise, if what you've imagined is that parenthood is going to be a cakewalk, like all you have to do is talk to one parent, you know? And you're going to be, you know, you're going to be like, Correct it immediately. Yeah. So you don't have to do much due diligence to figure out that that imagining is going to lead you astray. Right. Um, and so I was just trying to fine-tune the example a little bit. I mean, maybe you don't think it's going to be a K-walk. You know it's going to be hard. Um, but maybe you, you sort of imagine a kind of connection to your child that's going to be instantaneous and it, and for some people it is and for some people it's not mm-hmm. like there are some experiences of parenthood that are a little bit different from person to person and so you might think you're the kind of person who's going to have 
um, an instantaneous connection to your child and it turns out you're not and um, that attachment isn't going to be there from like second one and that just makes parenthood like really hard in a different way from what you thought um, so okay what I did in switching the example was to sh- say one thing which I think is like the, an answer to your question which is when you're making these decisions even if you're relying on imagining I mean there are ways to sort of use that imagining in conjunction with other sources of knowledge, you know, like you can talk to people. So um, I don't think imagining on its own is necessarily like the solution to everything. Um, hmm, Maybe I do. No, I I don't. I don't (laughs) think imagining on its own is the solution to everything. But I do think that um, when people are just telling you things, it's sometimes hard to really so someone just tells you like, oh, parenthood is so hard. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then if you like really set yourself the imaginative task, you start to understand it in a way that that you don't when you're listening to people. So I do think the imagination is value added. But I do think that the information you can get from other people is value added in terms of what Mm -hmm. it does with respect to your imagination. Mm -hmm. So imagination doesn't, imagining doesn't have to happen in a, in a vacuum, right? And this goes back to something I was talking about earlier when I was talking about imagining being a skill. Like normally, and this is sometimes why it's hard to remember that imagining is a skill. Because if you were trying to be a better juggler, um, you might go to a juggling class or hire a juggling instructor. Go to the experts and they might um, correct your form, right, to help you be a better juggler. Like they might say, oh no, if you hold your arm this way um, or if you let go of the ball this much faster, right? You're going to get specific instruction from someone else. And it's hard to see how we could get that kind of instruction with respect to imagination. Mm-hmm. And so that's why sometimes people are a little puzzled or, or worried about the claim that imagining is a skill. Like, oh, how can it be a skill if you can't get instruction in it? But here again, I, I think there are ways that we can get instruction in it. We can practice. We can then match our imaginings to the things that we've imagined, right? Mm-hmm. So we were talking about imagining elephants. Um, we've been talking about imagining elephants. I mean, you could have, you know, you could get um, like an encyclopedia, like a kid's encyclopedia, picture encyclopedia of the animals, right? And maybe there's a description of the animal on one side and a picture on the other, and you could like read just the description and then try to imagine the animal. And then you look and you're like, oh, didn't do so well. And then you go to the next page. Mm-hmm. And by the time you do, you know, like 200 pages of that, um, you might improve your imagination significantly, your ability yeah. to go from description to imagining. So the rule about expertise, I think it's the I think it's the 10,000 hour rule. So to become an yeah. expert at something, right, you have to do it for 20 hours a week, for 50 weeks a year, for 10 years, right? Is that 10,000? Someone can check my math later. Um, And so, obviously, you're not going to put in that amount of time to be an expert at imagining. But if you're trying to master a new juggling trick or skateboarding trick or ballroom dance, you're going to be working at it. And so this idea that imagining is just like, oh, I'll just sit down and imagine. Well, no, if you want to be a good imaginer, you're going to have to work at it too, put in the practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that um, that's very funny because that actually reminds me of um, from way back in, in my middle school career, uh, 
a little exercise that I did with um, a with a teacher, uh, Senor Saluso. If you're listening, uh, this was this was you. Um, yeah, we we uh, we were all sitting down in our classroom, and um, uh, this teacher, Senor Saluso, had us um, imagine a red cube. Um, sit down, close our eyes as a class, and imagine a red cube. And he guided us through this sort of um, imaginative exercise where we're working to manipulate the cube and we're imagining maybe now there's more than one cube and they're interacting in these sorts of different ways. Um, and yeah, so I can totally see how, how we can train our imagination in that way. And I, 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 I at least, um, am not a critic of the idea of imagination as a skill. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and there are other things we can do. I mean, I think uh, engaging with literature might be mm-hmm. something we can do to increase our imaginative ability. Um, I think uh, when people do, say, improv games, mm-hmm. um, that might uh, be another way to try to get the imaginative muscles stretched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Um, well, Professor Kind, this has been a really interesting interview. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down. You're welcome. Thanks for uh Thanks for having me on the podcast. So I actually recorded this episode at the beginning of this fall semester, uh, before I had taken Professor Kine's imagination class. Um, And I'm recording this intro and outro and doing all my editing at the end of that semester, having taken this imagination class. So my knowledge about the philosophy of imagination has grown exponentially since I recorded the episode. Um, That being said, Recording this episode did teach me a lot about imagination going into the class, um, mostly helping me shift my perspective about imagination from something that people are just good at to the concept of imagination as a skill that Professor Kind puts forward so convincingly. Um, I think that this way of thinking about imagination and perhaps also many other aspects of our mental lives could give us greater degrees of control over the thoughts that we entertain and more intentionality in using our imagination to help us in everyday life. Anyways, thanks for listening. I hope that today's show was not only fun, but perhaps set off some trains of thought to new and interesting destinations. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, have ideas for future episodes, or general feedback about the show, feel free to shoot me an email at wcilio20 at cmc.edu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Cilio, and this is Think Like a Human.